Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. We're very delighted that he's here with us today, so please welcome author, photographer, and actor Matthew Modine. Thank you. And, um, there will be a book signing afterwards, so you, you can get your own copy of his remarkable book, Full Metal Jacket Diary. So tell, tell me about when this, or tell us about when this um, book was done. The film, of course, was in production in 1985 and 86. Um, and I guess you obviously were taking a diary at the time, but when did you decide to make a book? Um, <laughs> well, I never decided to, to make a book. A, f- a friend of mine gave me a camera, a Roloflex camera. Um, and he told me that, that Stanley Kubrick had a photographic uh, background. He was a photographer. How many filmmakers here tonight? Is it, it, no audience for this afternoon. Yeah, how many actors? Yeah, actors and filmmakers. <laughs> um, what, anyway, so Stanley, Stanley was a photographer. And Look Magazine, uh, he grew up right here in New York. And he said that this might be a great way to break the ice with your relationship with Stanley Kubrick if you knew how to use this old Roloflex camera. So I taught myself to use it because I, I was nervous about meeting Stanley Kubrick. And um, the first thing he did when he saw the camera was said, what are you doing with that old piece of junk? Because this <laughs> is an old camera. And he talked me into purchasing a, a big uh, like a whole, he told me what lenses to buy, what camera body to buy, what camera bag to buy, what film stock to buy, and I hated everything that he told me to buy. But I fell in love with this old box camera, and uh, he allowed me to take pictures on his set, which was kind of unheard of because he was so protective of the of his sets and the in the imagery and the information that might come from his sets. But he was impressed with my photography, and I, I gave him prints as I did. Uh, I think just about everybody, every photograph in the book, uh, it's a photograph of somebody has one of the prints from the book from when I was making the film. And it, it broke the ice. And, it, and I, I got to say, I'm, I'm not a bad photographer. And, <laughs> and uh, so I always wanted to do something with the photographs. Yeah. And when I, gave, when I presented the book to this person to publish them, um, he wanted me to caption the photographs. And I said, well, I, I kept a journal while I was making the film, a diary, uh, as an exercise, as an actor, because I was playing a writer. And uh, so I kept this journal. You see me using it a couple times in the film. And uh, so when I transcribed the diary, the, d- the diary was actually kind of this extraordinary... It, it explained the experience of a young man going off to work with this legendary filmmaker with his wife and who became pregnant and, and the birth of his first child and um, the extraordinary circumstances and difficulty of working on a, on a film set with such a an extraordinary genius and demanding filmmaker. You tell an amazing story in the book about the day that your wife, uh, who had um, a C-section delivery, you had to get permission to leave the set because they were all waiting for you and you were supposed to be shooting, but your wife was about to have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew that I wasn't going to film today. It was when they were, they were uh, shooting Dorian Harewood, the, the eight ball, who was the first person to go into that, that square and get shot by the sniper. Um, Stanley was was shooting him literally, and 
And uh, I said, look, uh, my wife's having an emergency cesarean. She, my son was being born. He was uh, seven and a half months, so it's quite early to have a child born. And, um, and I, I was begging him to, to let me to leave the set so I could go and, and be there with my wife during this surgery. And um, if Stanley was nothing. He was practical. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you going to do there? Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not a doctor. <laughs> they're going to cut her open. You're going to pass out from all the blood. You're just going to be in the way. You'll probably fall on the doctor, and he'll stick the scalpel in your wife's eye. And I, I said, look, I, I got to go. You got to let me go. And, and he said, no. And um, <laughs> I took a pocket knife out of my hand, and I said, look, either you let me go or I'm going to cut my hand open. And I'm going to have to go to the hospital. It's your choice. And it was kind of an extreme, crazy thing to say. But we'd been filming at that point for about six or seven months. Uh, well, not filming, filming, but we'd been together for about seven months. All in all, the, the film was almost, uh, almost two years to, to make that film. Um, so it, it, I was starting to come unglued. And with the pressures of my, my, my newborn, I had to do something kind of dramatic and... I, I had to promise Stanley that I would be back to the set is immediately after the birth of my son, which I did. I stopped. I picked up some gar- cigars, and I came back and passed them out. And he, <laughs> he said, oh, great. Uh, what's his name? And I said, Bowman. He goes, oh, you can't call him Bowman. <laughs> and he, they cr- criticized the birth of my, my son's name, you know. <laughs> I said, well, you, what should I call him, Stanley? And so we had a fight about the name of my son. A uh, lot of people uh, have um, asked about what it's like to work with Kubrick. One thing, incident you have in the um, book is you go to meet with Alan Pakula because you did a film with him after Full Metal Jacket. And he said, what is he like to work with? Why do you think there's such curiosity about what Kubrick is like? Underlying this question is sort of the idea that it must be horrible to work with him, that he must be um, sort of this tyrant who just has people do hundreds and hundreds of takes for no good reason. It's, it's a good question. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm always asked. I was asked about it when I was making the film, after the film. It's, I can usually see on somebody's face when they're approaching me what question they're going to ask. What was he like? <laughs> and the diary helps to, in, in, in some interesting way, answer that, that question. There's a wonderful book that was written by Michael Hare um, that was taken from an, a, a small thing that he wrote when Stanley died in Esquire magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can smell Stanley when I read Michael's writing because Michael's a real writer. He wrote the book Dispatches. He wrote uh, the voiceover for Apocalypse Now. uh, And he wrote the screenplay from from Gus Hasford's book, Short Timers, in in this. Um, He's an extraordinary writer, and you really feel him. I I open the book talking about Stanley and how difficult it is to talk about him, to, to... respect his privacy. One of the most difficult things to keep in life is a secret. Stanley was very good at that. And uh, it's a difficult thing to share with the world, that book, that the ideas in that book. And I'm so blessed, I'm so thankful that when Stanley Kubrick's daughter, uh, Vivian, who was so close to him, she made, made a wonderful documentary, if you ever have an opportunity to see about the making of The Shining. Yeah. It's a documentary she made when she was 15, 16 years old. Um, you should see it. It's, it's an extraordinary documentary. It's on the DVD. It is it with is the DVD the, of, the, of The Shining. Um, and she thought the book was fantastic. She said, my concern is that the only people that might understand it are, are people who are artists or people who've, who've suffered to try to make themselves understood. 
um, she said that some people might read it and think that it's, it's something else. Hmm. And, but her and, and uh, Leon Vitali, who was in, uh, he was Stanley Kubrick's assistant for, uh, I think, almost 20 years. Right. Uh, he worked on The Shining. He worked yeah. on Eyes Wide Shut. He worked on Full Metal Jacket. And he starred in Barry Lyndon. He was yeah. the boy who shot Ryan O'Neill and made him lose his leg. Um, he gave me his blessing. He thought it was a fancy. Even the uh, Whispering Eddie, the sound man, called me and, and said how much he enjoyed the book. Vincent D'Onofrio uh, loves the book. And, you know, these are all people that, that I talk about in the story. And, and, and it was, <laughs> I was so relieved to have, have them say how much they liked it because, I mean, I take myself to school in the story as much as anybody else, but um, I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, the book paints a very complicated picture because you talk what comes across as the control aspect of Kubrick that he wanted to control everything but you also show him as being very open to ideas uh, one real interesting thing that's sort of a through line throughout the book is the ending he was would, would always ask you what do you think of the ending he sort of knew that the ending that he had intended where your character dies wasn't working well I don't know I mean originally <laughs> in, in, this, in, this, in Gus Hasford's book in the screenplay Private Joker dies in that final Mickey Mouse march there were mortar fires that start to go off. We never filmed it, but, but that was always the intention in the script and in the story was that Joker would die. When those mortar fires start going off all around them, that they, he, the voiceover says something like, uh, your feet tell your head to pick your body up to run from that which pursues you, you know. And, uh, he, th- and then the, my dr- thoughts drift back to Mary Jane Rottencrotch and all that stuff. And and then Joker sees himself as a little boy running with a wooden rifle and playing soldier. And then it cuts back to Joker as a, as a man and then back and forth and back and forth between the boy and the man until finally the boy who's, who pretends to be shot falls in mock death to cutting to uh, Private Joker dying in, in real life and kind of freeze-framing like in the very famous... Uh, I think world Spanish Civil War photograph of Frank. Uh, I mean, uh, Capa, Capa. What's his name? Robert Capa. Robert Capa's yeah. Yeah, that, that photograph where the person's caught in death, which they say was staged. Now, hmm. yeah, I don't who the, who the hell cares. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a great photograph. Um, and Stanley never liked that uh, the ending, endings. He never said that. He never said that specifically. I don't like that ending. But he said, "Have you? What do you think of the ending?" And I said, "Well, I really love it. I think it's a great ending. It shows the the terrible waste of war, the the loss of life of youth." Um, and he said, well, keep thinking about it. And we had a, a rule. We'd go into the trailer, and, which was a, it, it, you see in the story, it's such an honor to get invited into a director's trailer, and in particular to get invited into Stanley Kubrick's trailer and to sit down and have a cup of coffee with Stanley Kubrick. And he was making it. It was like watching Albert Einstein play with test tubes and stuff like that <laughs> because it was this extraordinary, you like coffee? And uh, yeah, I like coffee. Do you like African coffee? And he, he mixed up all this, these things and mixing and doing this and doing that. And I felt like I'd never had a cup of coffee before. Hmm. And then he said, we ha- let's have one rule, is that there can't be any bad ideas. Uh, you know, if, 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 we're, if we're talking about something and you don't like what I say, just say, yeah, or we could do this. He says, that way to keep things moving forward in a positive fashion. So don't ever say th- something is stupid or dumb because where do we go from that? It, kind of good advice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know if I should tell him the story because oh. it's it's kind of <laughs> I, I, I just kind of kill it. But 
Um, you want me to tell you the story? Or yeah, buy. Right. <laughs> then you don't have to buy the book. <laughs> yeah. There's um, still the nice pictures in the book. There's still nice pictures yeah. in the book. Um, so he kept asking me this and kept asking me this and kept asking me this. And it was some time around after the birth of my son. And I was still angry at him for having called my son. Uh, that he didn't like my son's name. And, uh, <laughs> and Leon Vitali came and said, Stanley wants to see you in the trailer. So I said, okay, what does he want to talk to me about? Uh, uh, you're going to have to find out. And I went in the trailer, and there were three other actors in the trailer. Now, there hadn't been any other actors in the trailer for seven months. It was just me and him in the trailer. And I was immediately jealous that Stanley had brought these guys in the trailer. <laughs> and it was uh, Arliss Howard and Adam Baldwin and uh, uh, Kevin Major Howard, the rafter man who shoots the sniper at the end. And he said, you know, Matthew, I've been asking you for almost seven months now what you think of the end of the film, and uh, you haven't been able to give me uh, one alternative ending. Now, I just asked these three guys, and they all have alternate endings. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Adam. And Adam, t- Adam tells me this story. Well, first it was Arliss. Arliss told me this story about how uh, he, he's not going to be dead. He's, he, you know, I, you think that I died in your arms, man, but, you know, I just... Uh, you know, I, I wake up, and we're both inside of an army tent, hospital, and I look at you, and I say, hey, Joker, wake up. And you open your eyes, and, and I say, I know you're just joking. <laughs> hey, you know, kind of something like that. And, and Stanley's pulling on his beard and scratching his head, and he goes, uh, Adam, tell him yours. And Adam, he says, okay, we're back stateside, and you're, like, driving your car, and you've got your laundry in the back seat, and you drive into one of those little mini malls, and you're going to take your clothes into the dry cleaner and, and you come in, you put your pile down and you're kind of getting your wallet out and you hear me say, Semper Fi. And you look up and it's me. And I say, hey, Joker. <laughs> <laughs> and and now I, I'm so pissed off and angry that these stupid ideas and I'm really biting my tongue because I, I don't want to say that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and then our, uh, Kevin Major Howard started telling his story. And I couldn't even hear him. I couldn't even hear what was coming out of his mouth. And then I turned to Stanley and I said, well, Stanley, I guess you could shoot them all. And then you'd realize how stupid they are. And then we'd reshoot them like we have the rest of the fucking movie. <laughs> and I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe that had come out of my mouth. That that, and I was trying immediately to grab the words and put them back in. And... Have you ever been in a car accident or he got hit in the head really hard and your head's ringing and, and I, I, I just, I didn't even say goodbye. I just walked out of the trailer and I, I can't believe what I just said. And Stanley called me, uh, uh, he called me a part of the female anatomy that begins with a C and ends with a T for about, it, it's a word that the English use that we don't use really here in America. But they, the English use it and it's really hard and it's blunt and he called me that, a miserable for, for about two months. And then, mm. uh, and then he came up to me one day, and I was really angry about something. And he said, you know, so, have you been thinking about the end of the movie? <laughs> <coughs> and I said, yes, Stanley, I have. I, I, I have been thinking about the movie. And, of course, I hadn't been. I hadn't been thinking about it for two seconds. And I said, yeah, I have. He should live. He should go through boot camp, and he should see the drill instructor who's trying to teach him how to save his life get shot and killed. He should live. He should go through boot camp and see this guy stick a rifle in his mouth and blow his brains all over the latrine. He should come to Vietnam and the one guy that he knew from boot camp should die in his arms and then he should have to stand over this young girl and take her life. He should live. 
he should live and have to spend the rest of his life with those images in his, in his mind because that's the real horror of war. You know, to, to, to come home after all that. And Stanley's eyes got, got really black and that really scary face that he makes, it's, you know, that picture that we all know. Uh, he, he started looking at me like that and pulling on his beard and he said, that's the end of the film. And I don't know if he was waiting for me to discover it, if it was something that he and Michael Hare had discussed. It fits with, his other, with um, some of his other films, endings that are ambiguous, yeah. leave, leave a sort of question mark, but the idea that, well, surviving is about all you can do. Yeah. So it's, it is a perfect ending. For the thing. Nobody's been able to, to tell me, and he can't yeah. because he's not yeah. with us anymore, yeah. what the ending of that. Maybe he was just waiting for me to discover it. One thing that I said at the beginning of the film, and I think it's really true, is that the, the thing that's underrated about Kubrick, because he's often talked about as being uh, all about style and technique, is that he's great with actors, that, that this film is really about these performances. It's about the transformation of your character, going from the, the war face in the beginnings in the boot camp scene to the face you know, when you have to shoot the sniper. That's, that carries the film, and, and that's an acting moment. So I think he's, I think he's great with actors. I agree. I mean, one of the things he said: Why do people always accuse me of doing so many takes and taking so long to make movies? It's not my fault. It's the actors. They 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 never know their lines. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? I I get called out in the film. I got caught on a day where we changed the shooting schedule, and suddenly they were trying to figure out something to shoot, and they decided, oh, we can shoot the Rifleman's Creed. And I didn't know it. And it's really an embarrassing moment in my life that I will never show up on set and not know, like, the whole script, just in case they change the scenes, because it was really, really humiliating. Hmm. When I came home after Full Metal Jacket, there's a guy named Marvin Minsky who wrote a book called Society of Mind, of the Mind. Mm -hmm. And in, in the book, Marvin Minsky's trying to explain how we learn, how the brain functions. And um, he, he, he gives an example of like a child that discovers that, you know, this is their world like this. And then they suddenly realize that this, this thing is attached to them. <laughs> and then one day they discover that their foot is the end of their body. And this is the beginning. And, and then when they start reaching out into the world, you know, knocking things over to a point where they can pick something up and then spill it all over their face. And, <laughs> and, and uh, all that process that a baby goes through of being able to get to a point in your life where you have a cup of coffee and you can, you can stumble and not spill it on the people in the front row of the theater because you know how to tamp your hand and, and not have that happen. That comes, that kind of motor, uh, I don't know what it's called, motor skills. Motor skills, yeah. From experience. And that's when Stanley was talking about knowing your lines. That's how he wanted actors to know his lines. And he, and he loved British actors because oftentimes American actors work on the characterization, the history. And the last thing that American actors usually taught in school is to go to the lines. And British actors, I think, on the other hand, use the lines to lead them to the same place that Americans arrive, you know, but in a different direction. Start with the lines and find the character instead of finding the character and then go to the lines. Um, do you, do you guys ever hear the story about Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier making Marathon Man? Do you know that story? Yeah. <laughs> is it worth telling it? Because it, I love the story because neither one is right. They're both right. It's, it, there's a really great movie John Schlesinger made called Marathon Man. Do you know the story? Mm -hmm. you, no, no, I don't remember it. No. 
So Dustin Hoffman's terrified that he's going to work with Laurence Olivier, this great, great actor. And he's, he, there's a scene where he's been locked up down in a, down in a basement, and it's cold, and he's, he's wet. And, and the next day, they're going to film this scene. So Hoffman decided to stay down in this basement overnight in wet clothes to prepare for the scene when, where Laurence Olivier comes in and starts inspecting his teeth and asking him, is it safe? Do you know the scene? It's a great yeah. scene. <laughs> Is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? Um, so Lawrence Olivier was really excited to meet this young American actor from The Graduate, this charming boy. So he was really excited to meet Dustin Hoffman. And so he's coming in with all of his happiness and joy. He's, meanwhile, he's playing a Nazi. And if, but he's not coming in as a Nazi. He's coming in as a happy Englishman coming to meet this young American actor. And, and now these two legendary actors meet. And Dustin Hoffman is soaking wet and sh- shivering. His lips are blue. And Laurence Olivier's reaction is, oh, my God. What's, somebody get him a blanket. Somebody get him a cup of tea. What, what's going on? I don't understand. And, and Dustin tried to explain in a very simple way that, no, that this is my preparation. I, it's all for the scene and everything. And Laurence Olivier's kind of standing there dumbfounded and looks at him blank-faced. My dear boy, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, in my opinion, they're both right. I mean, if Laurence Olivier can give that performance that he does in, in Marathon Man, that's just terrifying. He's right. I mean, he he didn't need to do what Dustin Hoffman did, but Dustin Hoffman is equally brilliant in the scene. So, you know, so long as you arrive at the same place of giving a great performance, and you don't cause a lot of trouble on the set and stop the production and. And it caused a lot of suffering to the people that are working on, you know, the crew members on a film. I, I think that you have to, because you're trying to capture something on film. So, so what was it like for you, for example, with that that last scene where you have to pull the trigger? What, was it more like Hoffman or Olivier for you, or what? How did you get to that moment? That last close-up. I, I asked Stanley about that close-up. I said, what did you do to the close-up? Did you do something optically? Did you slow it down? Did you do something? He goes, no, man, that's all you. Because there's something that's kind of surreal about that last close-up, the, the thing leading up to pulling the trigger and then pulling the trigger and the people's voices that are the things that are happening around me. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I do know that there was, a, there was a time when I was thinking about being a big movie star, and I thought, what is it that big movie stars have in common? If I was to sort of approach this as a as a scientist and make a periodical chart of actors, you know, and sort of place them on the, on the thing. So I have John Wayne here and Cary Grant there and Gary C- Cooper and Cagney and Fonda and putting all those guys up on that periodical chart and Mel Gibson and Stallone, big stars, you know, like people that you'd say are certifiably big stars. And I said, now, okay, now scientifically, how do I... If I were going to try to find something that each of those people have in common, well, they're all wonderfully photogenic, and they all have nice speaking voices. And um, Now, what is the movie that made each of those guys a big star? And as I was going through it, I found out something kind of horrible that, that, it was, that they all kind of had in common, with the exception of a few, like Cary Grant. What do you think it was? They all killed somebody. The movie that made them into... A big, big star, they took somebody else's life, whether it was White Heat with, with uh, Cagney. He was in jail for having yeah. been a knucklehead. Hmm. 
and uh, uh, Henry Fonda beating a guy's head, uh, beating a guy's head in with an axe handle and grapes of wrath. Hmm. John Wayne, take your pick, whichever movie. He's, <laughs> you know, he's killing people all the time. Uh, Mel Gibson, Mad Max, Tom Cruise, Top uh, Top Gun, um, and killing really the best thing we could have killed in the in the 80s was killing them damn commies. Um, <laughs> that red threat. Um, even Sigourney Weaver, you know, killing the alien, you know. Um, Betty Davis, uh, come on, help me. What was the Betty Davis movie where she killed, I mean, Sir Betty Jane, Baby Jane. That was a great one, she killed people. Baby, whatever, whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um, but you can make your own periodical chart and prove me wrong, but I kind of found that. And it made me sick to my stomach. So when I got to Full Metal Jacket and I was going to have to take this girl's life, I thought, if I'm going to take this girl's life, there's one thing that I really want to do. I want to I want to splash blood onto the audience so that they feel the loss of that person's life. That there's nothing that's nothing great about taking another human being's life. You know, I mean, that it's a horror that we. That, you know, the great thing about Full Metal Jacket is, is after all these years, I don't what it was like today when you watched. But when the drill instructor gets shot in the toilet, did anybody feel like, yeah, that fucking guy deserved it? Did anybody feel that? You did? Because I think that, yeah, he's just, but 98% of the people that see that film know that all that guy's trying to do is teach them so that they don't get killed. That they know that somehow that the thing that he's training them to do is to kill so they don't get killed. That great Patton quote that I, I don't remember what it is. It's, like, it's about killing somebody else's kid, not your, you know, that it's a really great quote. Does anybody remember it? Yeah, that other bastard. Kill that other, you know, that's, that's, that's their job, yeah. Well, that's the subject of the film, is the process of pe- that has to take place for the boys to grow up and, be, you know, get into a position where they can kill. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of Kubrick's whole idea. And also, he's a, Lee Army's character is a father figure. There's a sympath- uh, sympathetic side to him, and there's a sense that he's a father figure. The film, like many of Kubrick's films, is, has grown in stature and appreciation over the years. So it's, uh, what's your experience like, I mean, now that we have 20 years of perspective on it? Because it's a film that I think um, has only sort of gained in, in recognition. It, when it came out, it was, I think, right around when Platoon came out. Um, certainly, I think this is a movie that holds up <laughs> better. Um, I think it, there, there are films that stand the test of time. And yeah. I, I think that Full Metal Jacket is, yeah. uh, because of Stanley Kubrick's genius... Yeah. Uh, it has. Um, there's something really weird about the performances, I think, in the film. There's something, but I think that that's part of what Stanley was trying to do. That yeah. that there's a line in the film, the phony tough and the crazy brave, and and I think that that could sort of be what it you could say about the the performances in the film. This yeah. kind of this phony tough and yeah. crazy brave. Did did you bring some of the the idea of doing the John Wayne voice to the? Um, well, it was in Gus Hasford's yeah. uh, book that references to John. Wayne. Yeah, he he was always Joker was always doing these kind of John Wayne imp- imp- impersonations, and uh, I only had one. Was that first one? Was that you, John Wayne? Is this me? <laughs> and and it, I always loved that in the book. And so there was a scene uh, when I meet Animal Mother in the pagoda, and we almost get in a fight. It, what was written was it, he sticks his M sixteen. Uh, I mean. He, he comes over and he starts to try to make a fight with me. And it was written kind of like a Clint Eastwood scene. And I'm not Clint Eastwood. Um, <laughs> 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 I could squint like him. Uh, 
um, where he comes over and he starts to make a fight with me. And I say, look, man, I got twice as many hours in country as you. And if you don't get out of my face, I'll fucking blow your brains out. And I, like, stick my M16 in his neck. And we, we did it a couple times. And Stanley, uh, I keep saying he pulled on his beard because he pulled on his beard a lot. And he looked down at the ground. And uh, he said, let's go in the trailer and talk. And he said, uh, uh, where'd you grow up? I said, I grew up in Utah. Yeah, you were born in California. Yeah, I was born in California. I grew up in Utah. And he said, what would you do if some guy like, like Animal Mother uh, started to give you a hard time? I said, guy like Animal Mother? Yeah, a guy like Animal, big, strong guy. I said, yeah, what? I'd make a joke. He said, you make a joke? The guy's a big guy. He'd kick your ass. I said, no, no, not a guy like Animal Mother. He's all wind. That's, he's not a threat. If, if Animal Mother was, was a smaller guy, I would be scared because the worst fights I ever had in my life were with smaller guys. You get that low center of gravity, powerful legs, punch you in the jaw. <laughs> you know, Mike Tyson, all that power was in his legs. He'd come up and hit you in the jaw. But big guys, they're easy to take down. And uh, he said, I can't believe that you, you, yeah, I'd make a joke. He goes, oh, that's interesting. Um, did you read any jokes in the book uh, that, that we might be able to use in this? And I said, oh, yeah. And so we... Stanley and I were drinking that really strong African coffee, flipping through Gus Hasford's book and, and trying to find something. And I said, you know what would be really great is if I could uh, use one of those John Wayne things. And we found that one in the, in the thing. Yeah, well, only after you eat the peanuts out of my shit. <laughs> and, and so, so we, we, that, that was one of those times when we massaged the script into something else that suited uh, where Stanley was really good with, with actors and... Yeah. And feeling the freedom to say, okay, look, this is stupid. It's not working. Without saying stupid, though. Uh, this isn't working. Let's, let's change it. Let's make it something that fits, fits me. <laughs> you, I won't make you give away the jokes, but there's a, you tell a few long jokes to Kubrick in the book. Um, it's never clear if he actually found them funny or not. Yeah. <laughs> let's take a, a few questions before we go outside for the book signing. Did Kubrick discuss his political view, or was it pretty much clear? I never discussed politics with him. It's a lot of sports. He loved uh, baseball and football, uh, but never, never politics. I, I have no idea if where he stood politically or religiously. I mean, I'd, I don't think that Stanley ever had any intention of trying to make an anti-war film or a pro-war film. He just wanted to hold the mirror up to society, you know, to hold it up and just kind of have a look at ourselves. I think that Stanley could have said... Um, before you go pointing the finger at somebody and saying they're the bad guy, to have a good look at yourself. You know, have a good look at your own country's history before you start criticizing somebody else. I think, uh, you know, Stanley's often accused of being, uh, his films are cold or inhuman. And, and I find them quite the contrary. I think that they're the most humanistic films that I've ever seen, that uh, humanity is one of the greatest inventions that we've ever come up with. Um, because that animal history is, is just there, just right behind us, and just every opportunity has to come out and bite somebody or punch somebody or go to war with somebody, it comes out. That we really have to struggle if we're going to really live up to those ideals of humanity. And I think that that's something that Stanley was saying with a lot of his films. For me, 2001's about a lie. That's just, you know, about lying. And programming something to not to understand what's a lie and what's not a lie, mm. and then if you start lying to the machines, the machines going because it, it's it doesn't have that kind of thing that humans have. Mm. It's either O or one. What's Adam Baldwin like? <laughs> uh, 
What do you mean? Um, I mean, we had a good time together. Um, after I shot the sniper, there was a scene where Adam was supposed to chop the girl's head off because he's jealous that the people say to me, you're hard, Joker. You're born again hard. And, and he, he gets really jealous, and so he takes his machete out and, and uh, chops the girl's head off, and he picks her head up, and he holds it to all of us and says, hard, who's hard now, motherfuckers, and throws the head over it. And we, we filmed it, um, and uh, it, it, Stanley said it just was inappropriate. It wasn't, wasn't necessary after, after the horror of seeing what Joker had just gone through, of taking that girl's life, and that it was, it was inappropriate. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what Adam's like. I think he's a nice guy. He's from Chicago. He, uh, uh, um, I think he was really good in my bodyguard. <laughs> uh, I guess you don't get asked that a lot. What Adam Baldwin is? No, I never. That's okay. the first time in my life anybody's ever asked me what. It's <laughs> like okay. Yeah, I don't even know where Adam Baldwin's at. I, I've, I don't think I've seen Adam Baldwin in the twenty years since we made the film. How was the character's heart able to stay open despite all the experiences that were going on? What, uh, we didn't make any real progress. We didn't really get any traction for about three months while we were making the film. I never felt like we were accomplishing anything. And I had uh, 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 the, the responsibility of being the star of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. I, before I had the above the title billing, it said Matthew Modine and you know Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. And he asked me to take it off the top and put it down with everybody else's, and I felt it was appropriate to do that because it was an ensemble film. Uh, but I, while we were making the film, and I was starring in Stanley Kubrick's film, and we weren't making any progress, uh, your ego kind of starts to get scared and think, I'm failing him. I'm not providing him with what, what he wants. And it had nothing to do with me, but you think that. And I was out in a field one day, and I was feeling really bad. And I saw Stanley driving up in his Jeep, and I said, oh, shit. And I tried to hide behind some blades of grass. <laughs> and, and he saw me, and he drove over, and he goes, hey, what are you doing? Come on, jump in. I'll give you a ride to the set. I said, no, no, it's okay. I, 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 I'll walk over. And he goes, what's wrong? And I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, I, I, uh, I, don't, uh, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know what it is you want. I, 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 I feel like I don't know how to play, you know, private joker. And he kind of looked at me, pulled on his beard, and, and shut, <laughs> shut the car off at the Jeep. And he said, I don't want you to play anything. I just want you to be yourself. <laughs> okay, that's right. I'll just be myself. That's right. And uh, he said, "Kind of jump in. I'll give you a ride to the set. And I said, no, I'll walk. And when he drove away, I knew that the important part of what he had said was that I want you to be. And um, that was became really evident when uh, Lee Ermey, who was the technical advisor, who played the sergeant, the drill, in, the drill instructor, Lee Ermey was the, the technical advisor on the film. And there was an actor that was hired to play the drill instructor, and he was supposed to audition all of the other actors. We were filming Vietnam, and then we did boot camp. And so he was supposed to practice and get in shape and you know, practice his lines and, and, and audition all of the people that were going to be the extras in the background. 
and he'd get in front of the camera. Everything was being videotaped, and he'd do it for five or ten, ten minutes. His name was Tim Colcheri. He's a wonderful actor, and he ended up being the guy that's in the helicopter sh shooting uh, civilians, saying, get some, get some, har, har, har. Mm -hmm. You know, that, how do you shoot women and children? Easy, you just don't lead them as much. That guy, that, he was the drill instructor. And he'd do it for five minutes, and his voice would get sore because it hurts to yell like that for a long time. And he'd leave, and, but they still had a, extras to audition. So Lee Ermey would get in front of the camera and start auditioning these people. And the difference was that uh, Tim Colcheri was like, Hey, what's your name, soldier? And then you had Lee Ermey going, What's your major malfunction, soldier? What are you looking at? You want to fuck me? You know, and, and he started doing all that stuff. And then Stanley looked at the, uh, Stanley looked at the videotapes, and you had this other actor. And it was kind of not fair because that guy wasn't auditioning. He was just learning his lines and getting in shape. But... But Stanley saw somebody who was acting something, playing something, and then he saw somebody who was. I just want you to be yourself. And that's what Stanley was after, was that to be, to be you know, to, to get to that point where the lines are in you, like that cup of coffee I talked about that you don't spill, um, that it has to be inside of you. And, and if it's not, then maybe that's what that thing was about the end of the film, that of, of pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to get me to understand that Joker had to live that that's the horror of war, of having to spend the rest of your life, whether it's the first war, the second war, Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, that, that I think that there are a lot of soldiers, a lot of police officers, a lot of firemen who the, the nightmare of their life is, is the things that they have to, have to carry around with them in their, in their recesses. The story about Kubrick saying something about the difference between working with him and working with other... Directors. I, I've, I, I never heard Stanley talk about it. I heard Arliss Howard. Sa yeah, Arliss said uh, when he was saying goodbye to Stanley after we'd finished, um, he's not an affectionate guy. He's not somebody who grabs you and, you know, it's kind of was. I, I reached down to help him up one time. It's in the, in, I talk about it in the book that I put my hand down to give him a hand up when he was trying to find a shot. And just put, you know, just like you would if you were playing basketball and you want to help somebody up off the floor. And when I put my hand out, all of a sudden it was like this, this tough Jewish kid from the Bronx who got up and was like, you know, hitching his pants up. Like, what, you think I need your help? I don't need your help. Get away from me. And, and it was, he was so strong and so cocky. And so Arliss was trying to say goodbye to him, and, and uh, he said, uh, yeah, well, Stanley, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. And Stanley said, you know, you're going to miss me. And Arliss said, yeah, 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 I'm, I am, I will, I'll miss you. He goes, no, no, you're going to really miss me. When you're working on a set and the director calls cut, we got it, let's move on. And you're going to know that you don't have it and that we shouldn't move on, and you're going to miss me because you know that I would never cut and say, let's move on, unless I knew we had it, and you're going to miss me. And Arliss said the first time that he went to work on another film, and the guy said, cut, we got it, let's move on. He said, I really miss Stanley. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing this. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.